Yeah, uh, husband and wife both preaching makes for a very exciting uh, morning at the Easley household. You know, normally one is free to kind of support the other. Uh, this morning we were both edgy. You know, where's this? Where's that? Um, but hey, great to uh, great to be back with you. And I want to thank Jen for that like super generous <laughs> introduction. It's like I'm sort of looking around like who's she who's she talking about? Um, but uh, good to be back with you. Funny thing, just very, very briefly, I ran this by my wife, Candy. Like, is this okay to share? She said, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but I preached last uh, November here. And on the Tuesday following the Sunday, I was, I was with you guys. Uh, I had a full hip replacement surgery. And Brad was nice. He prayed for me. It was, it was really great. So here I am back with you. On Tuesday, I'm having rotator cuff <laughs> surgery. I'm curious about, I don't think it's like a causal connection, but if any of you have like a lot of wisdom to see patterns or something, I'm just suspicious of it. Or at the very least, I need to let Brad know of any future surgeries that I, I might be having so he can schedule me, you know, on that, that preceding Sunday. Anyway, that's my little off-topic opening remark. The hip is doing great. Golly, thank you for asking. I didn't want to go on and on. Now I might. Uh, I, 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 talk to me afterwards if you have hip issues, or you're an old guy like me, you have a hip issues, or a young person. I'm a big fan of that surgery, so, but I can't expand on that uh, right now. Uh, hey, the, the summer teaching series uh, with all the, the Bethany uh, uh, churches, campuses, is uh, based on Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. But let me say out loud an assumption I'm making this morning based on lots of years of like preaching every week and planning sermon series and, and, uh, and all, all that sort of thing. My, my assumption as we gather here today is not all of you have been in church every Sunday this summer uh, intensely tracking with the sermon series. I just know that summer's a time where we, you know, we travel, we see friends, we're out of town, we're camping on the weekend. And so we pastors think we plan the sermon series and everybody is just totally mentally synced up with that sermon series all summer. My assumption is for like some of you, yes, uh, and God, God bless you, um, but others, you know, this might be your first time back in church in a while. So I want to give a little backstory to this whole, whole fruit of the spirit uh, teaching, and just kind of set some context, and then we, we will dive into the Galatians text and the specific fruit this morning that we're going to focus on, which is goodness. So if that's a plan that works for you, that that's what we're. Head nodding, yep, great, because that's what we're doing. Um, let me say a prayer, and then, uh, then we'll proceed. Father, thank you so much for the chance to gather uh, this morning uh, with uh, one another as 
seekers or as followers of Christ to gather, to worship you, to pray, uh, to hear and respond to your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. We thank you for one another. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is with us as we have gathered today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the, the backstory uh, to Paul's fruit of the Spirit teaching in Galatians chapter 5, which I will read that text in, in just a moment. Um, I, I think of it as the basic like before and after dynamic of Christian faith, the before and after dynamic. And I think we find this before, after dynamic throughout the, the New Testament. And I'm going to give some examples in just a moment. But I, as I was prepping my message, I was kind of hoping I could have like a giant whiteboard behind me. So I'm just going to ask you to imagine a big whiteboard and I have the pen and that I write, I write uh, before, we're going to have a column of before and then encounter Jesus, that's the pivotal point, the crux of the matter, and then after. So before encounter Jesus Christ, and then after. And I, I just want to work with that context a little bit here. Good example of this, John chapter 9. You may remember this story. Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. So he's blind all his life. The healing uh, happened on a Sabbath. And as you may be familiar with this theme in the Gospels. The Pharisees were irate that this healing had taken place on the Sabbath. But in this case, they don't confront Jesus. It doesn't lead to an interaction with Jesus. Uh, they confront the man who was healed, and they kind of interrogate him. They badger him to explain how Jesus, this kind of nobody from Nazareth, could possibly mediate the healing power of God. And I picture this poor guy just surrounded by these, these scholars and religious leaders, you know, peppering him with questions. And he finally kind of just stops it all and says, listen, I can't explain it. I can't explain how this happened. But one thing I know, and you, you can say this with me if you want, one thing I know is... I was blind, and now I see. I know that. I can't explain that middle part, the encounter with Jesus part, but I know column one, I was blind. Column two, now I see. Lots of other gospel stories, too, that fit right in here. Think of the 12 apostles. Fishermen, tax collectors, just, I mean, they were just regular guys. Encounter with Jesus, the 12. They become the 12. And in some Christian traditions, they're, you know, they're St. Peter and St. Uh, John, St. James. Regular folks encounter Jesus. I'm wondering how he's going to be able to do all this pointing. Uh, transformed by that encounter. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, 
encounters Jesus. Remember, he's up in a tree. Jesus called him down and went to his house. Transformation became a different dude. Woman caught in adultery. First column, before, encounters Jesus. Go and what? Sin no more. New, new life. So the Gospels, I believe, are filled with these kind of before and after stories. The Apostle Paul, who we're going to read his uh, uh, Galatians text in, in just a moment here, um, in many ways, his whole biography is a before and after story. He references it in several places in his writings, but if you look at Philippians chapter 3, he kind of goes into some detail. He talks about his life as a Pharisee. He was zealous for the traditions of his people so much so that he was a persecutor of Christians. Uh, He loved, he was zealous for the law and the traditions. That's all like the before column stuff. Then he has this encounter, right, on the road to Damascus with the risen, risen Jesus. And it just turns his entire world upside down. And the, the persecutor of Christ and Christ's people becomes the preacher of the gospel and the servant of Christ. Um, and he even says in Philippians 3, you know, all that column my words, not his, but all that column, in fact, Paul speaking, I count as rubbish. In effect, that's rubbish compared to what I experienced through Jesus Christ and this new path, this new life that, that I'm on now. Paul says he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so Paul's is a kind of archetypal, a foundation, foundational before, after story. And so it makes sense to me that in many of his writings, he works with that, that framework. Colossians chapter 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these Uh, The wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked. This column on this side. You once walked. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. But now you've put off the old self with its uh, practices. And have put on the new self. Uh, renewed in the knowledge and after the image of its creator. Here, in this new self column, uh, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and Christ in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. So it's just this... This outlining, I think if Paul had had a whiteboard, he'd be doing exactly what I'm doing here. You used to be this. You used to engage in these behaviors. You've met Jesus Christ, and now you are called to this. Ephesians chapter 4, put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All of which brings us to our Galatians reading. Yes, I am actually going to read the the text this morning where Paul uses this metaphor of fruit as in a tree that bears fruit uh, to talk about the after piece of the before and after story. And the particular fruit that we're going to focus on this morning is goodness. Goodness as a marker of the new life that is ours in Christ. Um, I am about to read uh, Galatians, but I have in my notes, I ran this by Jen. I do want to like just pause button the sermon for uh, just a second and say, we're going to drill down now on the fruit of the Spirit and goodness. going to get real particular. But if you're here this morning and have not experienced personally this before-after transformation that, I'm, uh, that I keep referencing, I mean, you hear the words and you, you are positive toward it, but maybe, per- perhaps, personally, that step hasn't been taken. You've actually never really put your full weight on the gospel. Uh, I would just encourage you to, after worship, see Jan, you know here, uh, me, and just share, you know, talk a little bit more about that step of faith. It, it's really what all the fruit of the Spirit stuff is premised on. And so if that basic step of faith in Jesus Christ has not been taken, uh, I hope you'll still listen to my message, but th- the, that basic step is the more important thing this morning. And I mention this because when I was in college and not yet a go to church with friends, I would attend church, but I had not taken that that step of faith. So I kind of have a, a heart for the person who you're you're warming to it, you know, perhaps you're in church and you're positively inclined toward these things. I just kind of like what I needed, just that kind of that gentle nudge to to take that step, that step of faith. Okay. Um, Galatians 5. Uh, By the way, this is a really long introduction to reading Galatians 5. The sermon will be shorter, shorter. You know, it's not like, wow, if this is his introduction, how long is this thing going to (coughs) go? I know it's a long introduction. It's... I've shortened up uh, somewhat the, the rest of it. But let me read Galatians uh, 5, verses 19 through 25. Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh, whiteboard, you know, left-hand column, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, so he's making the contrast now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the, f- the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. So our focus today is on that one particular fruit, goodness. In Greek, it's the word agathos, which gives us uh, the female name Agatha. I don't know if there are any Agathas here. You don't hear that name a whole lot uh, today. Uh, And I'd like to suggest that we think of it, goodness, uh, in a couple of ways. One, it speaks to who we are as people, our character, our character, who we are. And secondly, it speaks to what we do as people, our actions, our behavior. So character and actions. Character, who we are. And I think this is the right order, who we are and what we do. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 18 said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, what the tree produces is based on who the tree is. Good character leads to good works. I believe Jesus and Paul are teaching. Now, as, as Christians, we'd want to say that this, uh, this character trait, this quality of goodness is not simply something we're born with, uh, you know, that comes naturally. Uh, rather, it's a quality of character that develops by being close to Jesus Christ. It's grace-based not nature-based. Now, there are are folks who seem to be just extraordinarily good people as if they were were kind of born that way. I have a son who's just exceedingly good, kind, compassionate, uh, all sorts of other good words. It's just who, it's in his DNA. I still think this passage speaks to him. Um, even though maybe he has a little head start on a guy like me who was not born, <laughs> not born that way. Uh, but it, we're looking at the goodness that comes about through the transforming work of God's spirit. It's flesh, natural self versus spirit, remember. And the fruit of goodness <clears throat> is a work of God's spirit in our hearts and our minds as we stay close to Jesus by faith. All of us, not just those who are kind of born with an inclination toward, toward uh, goodness, uh, but by staying close to Christ, we grow our character, who we are, grows in goodness. Kendi and I used to say to our kids 
especially when they were in the teenage, you know, the white knuckle teenage years of parenting. Uh, who you hang out with is who you're going to become. Who you hang around with is who you're going to become. Hang around with friends who are sarcastic, selfish, mean. You're going to start sliding in that direction. Uh, hang around folks who are thoughtful, kind, generous. You're going to become more like that. And it may be a, a funny way to say it, but the best way to develop a character that reflects the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists is to kind of hang around with Jesus. <laughs> To let Jesus, the giver of the Spirit, and the example par excellence of the Spirit-filled life, influence us. To be close to him, allow him to influence us. My son, Mason, uh, who I just, the good Mason, uh, I won't fill out the story with my daughter, tell you about my daughter. <laughs> we had one of each, let me just put it that way. Easy, challenging. Um, he met his now wife, Paige, when they were both students down at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Go Frogs. Um, Paige w was, is from West Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, Mason spe has spent a lot of time with Paige and her family in Louisiana. Um, my tracking device on my iPhone, it's kind of funny, you know, I call it the Where's My Wife app. It's where is whoever you've signed up with. But for Mason, it always put, puts him at, when he's visiting Paige's family, puts him at Duck Dynasty. That's where it says <laughs> my son is. He's not at Duck Dynasty, it's his Duck Dynasty, if you remember that show. Is right near West Monroe, Louisiana. But here's what fu is funny to me. When Mason is down there for a while in Louisiana, I'll talk to him, and he'll throw in some y'alls. He starts talking a little bit like they talk in Louisiana. I think it's perfectly normal. Who we hang around with influences who we are. We want to hang around with Jesus. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to develop a, a Jesus accent. And we only do that by staying close to him. Um, of course, hanging around with Jesus is different than simply driving to West Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, we no longer find Jesus in a physical place, you know, physical space and time. But I think there are lots of ways to become more familiar with who Jesus is and what Jesus cares about. We read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. We take time to, to read those stories or hear messages on those stories or uh, meditate on the stories of Jesus. We meditate on his life. We pray we worship, we enjoy Christian fellowship that, that encourages us in that direction. And it 
staying close to Jesus means believing what I only can describe as kind of a deep mystery. And Jesus himself spoke of this, that he would be with his followers always. And that he even would come and abide with us and make his home, he literally says this, spiritually, and that's why I call it a mystery. It's not, you know, it's not like simple and, and obvious how this works, but I believe that it works. If we place our trust in Christ in a mysterious yet very real way, Christ himself dwells with us and in us. As Paul says in another letter, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us. So it's different from any human relationship we may have, a spouse, a friend. Uh, But I think this spiritual relationship we can have by both meditating sort of on the, the written record of who Jesus was. What was he like? Dwell on that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And to embrace this notion that through the Spirit, some, Christ himself is with me. He promised he would never leave or forsake me. He promised he would come and make his, his home with me. Um, as we do that, we see the fruit of goodness, the goodness of God mediated through Jesus, grow and develop in our lives. As we abide in the true vine, he nourishes us and his love fills us. I brought my, uh, in my morning devotions, I don't know what anybody else calls that, uh, morning devotions. When I was younger, quiet time. What's the right lingo? Quiet time. I read my Bible. I write in a journal and keep track of prayers for people and just, you know, had a great day yesterday, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I read, uh, for a number of years, I've been reading this uh, devotion, devotional by Charles Spurgeon. Now, Spurgeon is old school. It's like mid-19th century, way back, you know, OG. I mean, this is a long time ago. But I think he's brilliant. I think he's a brilliant theologian with a tremendous sensitivity, a pastoral sensitivity. And this was from yesterday. And I thought, this is, this is perfect. And the scripture is John 17, 23. And Spurgeon will do this. He'll sometimes just take this, in this case, three words. I in them. It's from Jesus' prayer in John 17. And at one point he says, I in them. You know who the them is? Us. If such be the union which subsists between our souls and the person of our Lord... How deep and broad is the channel of our communion. This is no narrow pipe through which a thread-like stream may wind its way. 
It is a channel of amazing depth and breadth, along whose glorious length, and this is what I underlined, a ponderous volume of living water may roll its floods. A ponderous volume of living water may roll its floods. I in them. We have that. We have that connection. <clears throat> so we want to hang around Jesus. We want to pick up his accent, his mannerisms. We want his goodness to so infuse us that though we'll always battle, you know, with the flesh, to use Paul's terminology, increasingly the goodness of God uh, will permeate our lives. It will become more and more who we are. Not perfectly from day one, but it is our path of discipleship, of spiritual growth. Becoming more Christ-like and reflecting his goodness. And our being now, getting to our second point and the final few words of this, of my message. Uh, the second point, our being leads to doing. It's who we are and it's what we do. And here's where things get a little more concrete. Uh, the spiritual presence of Christ in our lives, uh, even when we fully believe it and affirm it, can seem a little bit ethereal, a little bit nebulous, especially if your orientation is in the STEM disciplines. Uh, maybe this abiding presence of Christ seems a little too woo-woo for your liking. You're more concrete, tangible. Okay, I think you'll like this second point. Let's get concrete, specific, real life. And the New Testament is exceedingly helpful on this point. Our actions, our works that reflect the goodness of God and the presence of God's spirit are called, <clears throat> are you ready for this? Good works. The work we do when God's goodness fills us and we act on that, the work we do are good works. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Acts 9, 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Timothy 6, 8. They, we, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Titus 2, 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Um, and I'll jump to my last one. I have a long list here. And let us, Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Good works. So we are 
good by the grace of God, the, God's goodness at work in us through Christ, which leads to those actions we take to express that goodness, which the Bible calls good works. These can be explicit and almost obvious in nature. I think of, you know, if you go and volunteer at the Aurora Commons, you know you're doing a good deal. It's something Jesus would want us doing. You know, it's, it's very clear that is a good work. Meals at a homeless shelter. I don't know if it's still the case, but I think it was Thursday nights that Bethany Green Lake would serve meals, and folks without the resources would come. And to volunteer, that is clearly a, a good work, to help fix up a school and a long list of things. We feel good because, again, it was these things are just so clearly what Jesus would want his people uh, doing. And I hope all of us are kind of on board with, in some way, shape, or form, engaging as you're able in, in that kind of uh, good work. But there are other types of good works, maybe more understated or mundane, uh, that will probably form the bedrock of our of the concrete actions God calls us to. I'm thinking here that these sound simple, but they can be hard to do. Uh, the simple kindnesses shown to those closest to us, to just be kind to those we we live with every day, to show kindness. To the stranger, to have honesty and integrity in our business dealings, to tell the truth, you know, to not obfuscate, but to be truthful, to be caring. In a word, striving to be people who positively represent our Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. And it can be a challenge. Speaking Personally, confessionally, I find it way easier to be uninvolved, uh, to be easier to be indifferent, easier to be critical. But here's the deal that's not the Spirit of Christ. That's my flesh. And whiteboard in your mind, we are called to the right handed column. I close with this, <clears throat> this story. I think you'll like this. Back in the 90s, and I know some of you weren't born yet, I'm, I'm guessing, but I was around. Uh, people would yell, wear these yellow bracelets that would have the initials WWJD. And I think it's that you know that means, what would Jesus do? Uh, and it's, it's, that's not a bad thing. I'm not a bracelet guy, so I never wore one, but I like the sentiment, and I think it reflects good Christian teaching. What, in a tricky situation, or any situation, what would Jesus do is, is not a bad way to go. But there's an interesting story kind of behind that, that bracelet, and I want to just share a little bit from an article um, 
When Christians began wearing bracelets with the acronym for what would Jesus do in the 1990s, the phrase was a reminder for them to attempt to act in a way that personifies Jesus' teaching from the Gospels. While most know the WWJD movement as a recent development, the wording has been around for more than 100 years. As Charles Sheldon, a Topeka minister and evangelical Christian writer, used it in his 1897 novel, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Okay, 1897. The idea of imitating Jesus and trying to be like Jesus is something that's been around forever, said Tim Miller, University of Kansas professor of religious studies and expert on Sheldon's life. What he did was create the phrase. That was the watchword. And the whole scenario of Sheldon's novel is you're asking the question every time you have a moral decision to make, Miller said. What would Jesus do if he were in my shoes right now? And you're supposed to try to conscientiously figure out uh, that out and decide what you should do. There is still widespread interest in Sheldon today, Miller said. Even though Sheldon died in 1946, he was a national leader in what was known as the social gospel movement that put social issues at the forefront of religious life. His book was so widely read that there was a time when just about every Protestant in the country was familiar with the novel. Sheldon served as a pastor of the Central Congregational Church in Topeka from 1889 to 1919, but he's widely known for his writings and his social activism, including civil rights, uh, tolerance, uh, prohibition, Christian uh, journalism, and peace. Um, but here's the part that caught my attention. You could argue that his focus on civil rights and race relations paved the way for the Brown v. Board of Education decision, uh, lawsuit, that originated in uh, the Topeka School District and ended, and I, I hope you're somewhat familiar with the Brown versus Board of Education, it ended segregation in public schools. And the particular case that the Supreme Court took was the Topeka, Kansas Supreme Court, uh, uh, I'm sorry, school district. Sheldon worked to bring better education to the poorer residents of Topeka, and through his Tennessee Town projects in 1883, he established the first kindergarten for black children west of the Mississippi River. His residents, of, uh, most residents of the neighborhood, which was on the southern edge of Topeka at the time, had emigrated from plantations in the south. One kindergarten graduate was Elisha Scott, who became an attorney. And two of his sons, Charles and John, later argued the Kansas portion of the Brown versus Board of Education case. Elisha, whom Sheldon had also helped get through law school, named his son Charles Shelton Scott. 
what struck me was it's, it's, <laughs> it's sort of more than just a cute yellow bracelet in that context. It's transforming a community and a country. It's saying, what would Jesus do with these kids who now are leaving the plantation life of the South and migrating to Topeka, Kansas? He would love them. He would care for them. And he would want to see them well-educated. What would Jesus do? Great question to be asking ourselves. And so, um, my final short paragraph, as is often the case, Scripture provides us with a kind of analytical tool for our lives, how we think about our life. I'd frame it this way as two questions for us this morning. Am I doing the things that allow me to kind of pick up Jesus' accent? And two, am I engaging in those good works? Whatever my particular context at this point in time. Let's join our hearts with prayer, in prayer. And so, Lord, uh, please, uh, through your Holy Spirit, apply your word to each of us this morning. Help us to allow the good seed of your word to sink in. Uh, call us forward, encourage us, challenge us. Help us through, to be people who through your Holy Spirit both are good in our character and are engaged in the good works that Jesus calls us to. It's in his name we pray, amen.